Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss immigration policy is Marta Tienda. Marta is the Maurice P. During Professor in Demographic Studies at Princeton. She is the co-author or co-editor of eight books and has published over 150 articles throughout her career. She studies the impact of race, education, and immigration status on socioeconomic inequality. Currently, she is developing two research initiatives on age and immigration. Welcome to the show, Marta. Thank you very much. So ever since the 2016 election, immigration has been a central issue in American politics. President Trump centered his campaign on building a border wall along our southern border and drastically reducing new immigration. In light of recent event, it appears that immigration will continue to serve as a foundational role in the 2020 election. Looking back over the years, has immigration always played such a sizable role in national politics? Well, the answer is yes and no. But just focusing on the more recent period, it's quite hard to imagine that just two years before Donald Trump announced his candidacy, Congress was on the verge of passing a comprehensive bipartisan immigration bill that was crafted by the so-called Gang of Eight. This was four Democratic senators and four Republican senators. The legislation was actually passed by two-thirds majority in the Senate, but it was blocked by the House. Senator, um, the Speaker uh, Boehner at the time, refused to bring the bill to House vote. And that was that. It's really quite unfortunate because it would have addressed many of the issues that are quite salient today. We wouldn't have uh, had a a border wall, the security would have been addressed. And the status of dreamers, that is the children brought to the U.S. by unauthorized parents, would have um, obviated the need for an executive order that President Obama put forth. And that's become another issue, a very sensitive one. So in sum, I think uh, Trump converted immigration to a major powerful wedge issue since the day uh, he announced his candidacy. Uh, And he made and continues to make immigration a rallying cry for all sorts of problems uh, because it was then that he introduced the, uh, the Great Wall along the southern border that Mexico allegedly would pay for. In fact, at the time that he made the announcement about the need for this wall, the great, big, beautiful wall, net immigration was already zero. And that's a level that was reached in 2008-9, and it was associated with the uh, uh, the Great Recession. And it has been maintained at net zero ever since that time. So that was the start of many false narratives that his administration would assert as fact. And that has continued to the present day. He puts it aside when another major issue comes to the fore, and then he brings it up whenever it's convenient. You mentioned that that's how it's looked in recent years, but you seem to allude that historically immigration has been a foundational issue in in prior elections. Could you elaborate on that? That since the uh, late 19th and 20th century was immigration such a contentious political issue for Congress and the nation. And that was during the period of what we call the third wave. And this uh, immigration period covers uh, uh, from about 1860 to 1920. That period is important because if we think about the context, that was where we're about to have the Civil War, slavery, and racial divides were important. And the eugenics movement began again momentum during the 1880s. Um, th- at the time, there were three issues that were contentious politically. One was the size of the flow. The second was a shift in the countries of origin or the the uh, composition of the flow away from Western and Northern Europe to uh, Eastern and Southern Europe. 
And then the third, and this is important because it resonates today, are the settlement patterns. They were politically contentious because most of the immigrants settled in the northern cities. And as a result, this shifted the distribution of power in Congress between the north and the south, even after slaves were counted as full um, persons for purposes of representation. So this period, as a result, ushered in this restrictionist movement where Congress at the time debated whether immigrants should count for purposes of representation with a contingent of Southerners, Southern representatives, arguing that only citizens should be counted. Although the Constitution is very clear about persons, residents, and citizens, and how they are counted for purposes of representation, all persons count, we are having a replay of these issues today. Think about the discussion about the U.S. Census in 2020, should uh, immigration status be included on the census. Of course, it wasn't included, but the damage was already done, and we have a very low um, response rate this year. Could you elaborate on the policy differences between the Trump and Biden campaigns? Yes, um, there are quite significant differences between the two. For example, Biden would stop criminalizing border crossings, which has been one of several punitive hallmarks of the Trump uh, platform. Biden does understand the importance of border security, and we have an incredible apparatus to do this with all electronics and modern uh, technology, as we do uh, in the northern uh, border. Um, but uh, the, he doesn't need an expensive and symbolic physical wall to accomplish what modern technology can achieve today. The deportations under his administration would focus on those with criminal records, something Trump promised at one point but did not deliver. Instead, Trump has taken a broader aim at all immigrants by targeting families and workers and then more recently narrowing eligibility for for benefits. Unlike Trump, who hasn't been able to resolve uh, the status of DREAMers, a DACA, or the temporary protected status groups, Biden wants to grant uh, permanent residency to the uh, DREAMers to create a pathway for citizenship for them and resolve the status of, of some 10 to 11 million undocumented immigrants. This is something that the Gang of Eight had agreed to in 2013 because there was recognition that immigrants have contributed to the vitality of our country. But in contrast to Trump, who slashed the cap on refugee admissions from 80,000, then to 45,000, and then again to 30,000, and most recently set the cap on refugees at a meager 18,000, Biden wants to raise the cap to 125,000, which I believe will actually surpass Obama's highest cap. Whether they will actually be processed is another matter, but at least he's allowing that to be the the cap. Trump, I think, is going to continue with this wasteful uh, wall nonsense. It's grandiose waste of, uh, of taxpayer money and includes reconstructing pieces of a wall that are already in place. He's going to continue uh, separations of families, even though they said we're not going to do that anymore, because there are no guidelines to stop the separations if criminal if he criminalizes all entries, which the uh, administration has done. DACA is for him still a work in progress. Trump has moments when he promises to protect youth, but then only the courts have prevented him from uh, ending the protections. So it's unclear right now that's on, on, on hold. Uh, during the election cycle, focusing on on uh, urban protest, uh, it's not clear how Biden would deal with work visas, 
but he would probably end the diversity visas and some categories of family sponsorship, such as siblings or adult children of uh, legal permanent residents. This is something that I have written about that was also supported by the Gang of Eight. I don't believe our own Senator Menendez would support this changes to family reunification, but probably he would agree to ending the diversity visa. So there are some clear differences, but for Trump, uh, he's been rewriting immigration policy through executive order and through different instruments of discretion, changing process and and, uh, lowering thresholds. So, of course, all of this discussion is taking place with the COVID-19 pandemic as a backdrop. Has the pandemic affected the immigration debate in any way? Well, it's probably going to affect our representation for some time in the future uh, because of the problems that the Census Bureau is having uh, with this response rate in many cities. And and COVID has taken a disproportionate toll on communities of color. Whether that will rally those who are are losing their loved ones is uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but I would have predicted before COVID that the chances of Donald Trump uh, could be reelected were much better than 50-50 because the economy was very strong. But he has continued to use every speaking opportunity as a ca- uh, campaign rally, as he did after he was elected the first couple of years. But that pesky virus refuses to disappear as he predicted. And he stopped the, the briefings because he kept getting himself tangled. But that has undermined the prospects of in-person rallies, which is one of his favorite activities and where he really does mobilize the base. And with news coverage, it makes it seem even bigger than it has. He has grown his uh, ranks of detractors uh, due to the virus and more recently has caused some Republican governors to challenge his leadership. I wouldn't say that the uh, Texas Governor Abbott challenges leadership, but he did uh, go on reversal and pause the reopenings after the, the cases spiked. And as several reports have shown, COVID's impact has been especially harsh on communities of color. Will they will that have uh, an impact and what will that impact be? I think remains to be seen. It's currently unclear how the unrest uh, over police brutality will play out because he's using it as a a rallying uh, cry again to mobilize support. But but the protests are linked with COVID to some extent, because on some of the uh, news briefings, one of the senators, Jordan, was asking him, uh, trying to get uh, Mr. Fauci to assert that the protests were the reasons for the spikes when, in fact, they were outdoors and people were wearing masks. So it was very difficult, but they're trying to establish connections wherever they can. For Biden, I think the pandemic is an opportunity for him to put the health policy back on center stage uh, and reviving the principles of affordable care. That was uh, left off of the platforms and, and at the at the convention, the Republican convention. COVID has laid bare the need to craft uh, health care policies that are both inclusive and affordable, and the Trump administration has not done that. So you, you mentioned earlier about the courts being a stopgap to some of President Trump's policies and executive orders. I wondered if we could turn our attention to talking more about the courts and specifically the role of the Supreme Court in terms of their recent rulings regarding DACA and sanctuary cities. What role do the courts play in the future for immigration policy? Well, there have been three categories of changes. In the absence of any congressional legislation, uh, bipartisan legislation and comprehensive reform that everybody says we need, but somehow we can't get it uh, happening because the two chambers are reversing their support. That the administration has been influential in revi- rewriting immigration policy through three mechanisms. One is substantive. So uh, the, the clearest case here is the asylum, where, where the president sets the levels on an annual basis. And Trump has basically done two things. He's lowered the threshold and he has also disqualified members of, of gang and domestic violence 
as a membership in a special group. So they dis are disqualified and they, so that's how they interpreted the refugee convention. On process, it's been quite influential, even in the absence of congressional reform, because they uh, put in place the congressional, the migrant uh, protection protocol, which stipulated that that asylees uh, or those requesting asylum in the U U.S. from Central America must wait in Mexico while waiting for the adjudication of their cases. However, COVID uh, required a closing of the border in Mexico and, and also Canada. So that ended that and their uh, people are stuck in limbo. He is also on process halted the uh, process of green cards. So they're, uh, they're very, very slow. And that's a way of, of restricting the actual numbers admitted to the United States officially. And he's also tried to halt non-immigrant uh, visas. So uh, he's yielded a little bit on the latter, but he's basically using um, substantive changes and process changes uh, at, with his discretion to, to actually change immigration uh, uh, procedures and having an impact on the total number admitted to the uh, to the United States. So regardless of who wins the presidential election, do you think the Congress will be poised to, to bring up some of these issues that Trump has been taking on by executive order, but really probably fall more under congressional oversight? Well, I think they will. They can be quite explicit on some of the areas where the, the president has issued uh, some discretion, like ending temporary protected status for thousands of uh, migrants that have been protected for many. Some of them have been here 10, 15 years. And if that's not resolved, that will lapse into undocumented status and they, that will increase the size of the undocumented population. So Congress needs to take action on temporary protected status, not just let it expire, which is what's been happening. I think uh, they're the DACA issues remains a very sensitive issue because even though the Supreme Court did not support the de decision to, to uh, terminate DACA, it's it's really a very tentative victory at best because it focused on procedural issues, which left the door open for a uh, revised executive order. So the DACA decision was criticized by the court for being arbitrary and capricious because it didn't question whether relevant interests were taken into account. It's on hold until after the election. It, the, the administration doesn't want to spend any any uh, capital on DACA when they had these other the COVID and the uh, structural racism on the on the center stage. But but what it did in the meantime that's consequential is that they posed new restrictions on the DACA recipients. No advance parole, which means that they cannot leave the country. No new applications for those who age into eligibility. And they only gave a one-year extension, not a two-year extension for those currently in status. So in a sense, they go, they work through gradual erosion if, in fact, the court were, uh, works against them, which seems to be the, the case. So in the lead-up to the election, they rewrite the orders to end DACA. Minor distraction now, not we're spending more political capital, but it's very clear what the intention is at this point. You had mentioned the census. So clearly the census has, you know, faced major disruption with COVID. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the role that the census plays in terms of immigration and in terms of benefits and how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the census and how that could affect communities of, of immigrants? Well, the, the census is really important because it does want to count all persons, regardless of immigration status. And I can tell you that some places in New York, are the, the response rate in certain areas is below 50 percent, which is really unfortunate. Um, some have left 
of, of certain areas and they're in second homes and others are stuck in certain places, but they're afraid to to respond because of the uh, the big scare of you have to report your immigration status. So many don't want to respond. They don't, they don't trust a government that's going to uh, just count them and not come back and link it to some other uh, reference. The problem is that this undercount, even if there was some adjustment, if it's quite severe, it'll be very difficult to justify the, the higher count if, if the residents are currently here. And that's used for, for state funding, for block, block formulas and the like. And places that have undercounts stand to lose a great deal in federal benefits for, for uh, programs that are matched by uh, block grants. So this is going to last another 10 years. It's going to affect all of the surveys and the sampling frames going forward. So it it can be quite consequential. The COVID pandemic has made it even difficult from another angle, and that is the post-enumeration survey where, where census enumerators go and try to find the individuals who have not yet responded to the census. That period, the current administration shortened the period by a month. Uh, again, it's this nitpicking and using all these little small weapons and levers to try to restrict the, the the count under these very dire conditions. If anything, it should be extending it so that places where the, the curve has been uh, flattened a bit uh, could actually sustain some post-enumeration follow-up by uh, census interviewers. So it's another perfect storm that really is going to be quite consequential in the years to come. And if, in fact, it is the communities of color that uh, exhibit the highest undercount rates as they have in prior censuses, then I think that the the will be a double triple whammy for the most vulnerable represent, uh, citizens of this country. So, in the in line with the name of this podcast, uh, what is what do you think is the most important point on immigration that voters should consider before they vote? Well, most citizens are not aware that immigration policy has three components, and this is true across the world. There's a humanitarian component. Uh, which is the uh, asylum request, the refugee uh, protocol. We need to honor our commitments. We are we are shamefully uh, neglecting that, and it really does affect our place in the world. The second one is a pillar is employment. We do have a responsibility to align it with our current labor needs, not the needs needs that were established uh, in in 1965 or the la- 1990 revisions that that have been very incremental. So there's a major realignment that's needed. And, and the third is family reunification. I think that we are one of the countries that have the largest share of our admissions governed by family reunification. Two thirds of, of legally admitted immigrants are, are relatives of current uh, citizens or non uh, or, uh, legal residents. That's in contrast to Canada or Australia that where it's just the reverse, where only about a third or a quarter are our uh, family members. So those those three uh, criteria have to be realigned again. But the only winning strategy on immigration is comprehensive reform along the lines proposed by the Bar- Bipartisan Gang of Eight in 2013. And it addressed all three of these issues. And had that bill been allowed to come before the House, we would not be having this discussion today. We might be having other discussions about DACA recipients, but but we wouldn't be having this discussion. Well, uh, it's certainly going to be an, an, an interesting fall as a lot of these issues are played out both in the press and in the debate. So I really appreciate you taking time uh, to talk with us today. And thanks for being here. Thank you. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. 
It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.